Welcome to the Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast, brought to you by Unincorporated, a higher education agency committed to building awareness and growing enrollment for universities. This podcast provides deans, senior admin, and faculty with the tools, resources, and information they need to grow student interest, design branded content, and launch new programs and courses. Hey everyone, this is Ian from Unincorporated and I wanted to welcome you to the Higher Ed Happy Hour. Today, I'm here with Emmy Neatfeld. Emmy is the author of the book Acceptance, which is a memoir of her journey through foster care and homelessness to building a successful career and a life filled with purpose and meaning. Part of her story includes graduating from Harvard in 2015 and then working as a software engineer at Google which in itself was an experience that she wrote about in a New York Times essay. And this essay, entitled, After Working at Google, I'll Never Let Myself Love a Job Again, ended up going viral and amplified Emmy's voice and point of view. Emmy is passionate about mental health, personal development, and helping young people navigate their careers. She's here today to share her unique experience on how to overcome life's most challenging obstacles, especially as it applies to the college student and their career post-graduation. Emmy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. So let's get started. I want to hear just a bit about yourself and how you went from living in a car to graduating from Harvard and then becoming a software engineer at Google. Yeah. My name is Emmy. (laughs) That's like such a big question. I'm like, where do I begin? Um, (laughs) um, Yeah. So I I grew up in Minnesota. I was raised evangelical Christian. My parents were married until I was about 10 and then they divorced. And like a lot of other young people that kind of threw my life into chaos. One of my parents moved away and I lived with my mom who dealt with compulsive shopping and hoarding. And like a lot of other kids, you know, she she took me to therapy to deal with the divorce and also thought that maybe I had ADHD. And I, while the, that treatment can be life-saving for some kids, it threw me into the cycle of being medicated, being hospitalized, and not being able to deal with kind of the, the turmoil going on at home. Um, where we often didn't have hot water or and there were mice everywhere. And so when I was 14, I was sent to a residential treatment center where troubled teenagers are locked up and given a lot of therapy and kind of punished until they change. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was when I decided that I really wanted to go to college and get out of that situation. Following that, I was in foster care and when I was a junior in high school, I got a scholarship to an arts boarding school. So I left foster care for there, but I spent my holiday breaks staying with friends, couch surfing with relatives, and at times sleeping in my car and staying at a shelter. And the whole time I was very fixated on getting into college. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I was 17, that did happen for me. I got into Harvard and went there. And as we're going to talk about today, as a teenager, I hoped that that would be my ticket out. But there are unique challenges that students with back rows like mine face, even when they get to a university that has a lot of resources and can support them, the school doesn't always know exactly how. 
and the students don't always know how to ask for it. So that was the position that that I was in. But I was very lucky to study computer science and graduate with a job at Google where I worked for four years. Well, that was a really eloquent way of laying the groundwork for the rest of our conversation. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the fact that both as someone who left a difficult home to go to college in order to find a safe space, and one who also now on the faculty side sees that college and classrooms, those are the safe havens uh, for many of my students today, can definitely appreciate that, that sentiment and that desire to kind of leverage college in that way. So in the world of personal and professional, we'll kind of transition into uh, more about the book contents and, and your point of view there. In the world of personal and professional development, we hear words like grit and resilience and discipline, right? But in your book, you talk about how this type of mindset actually comes at a cost and that there are significant downsides on focusing terms like this. Can you tell us just a bit about that? So in my memoir, Acceptance, I write a lot about the messages that I was getting from adults as a teenager in the early 2000s. So 2006 to 2010. And as a society, we have been very focused on this idea of grit and that if kids are just tough enough, that they can overcome any obstacle and that it's really a question of mind over matter. And I think this can be very useful in certain contexts. You know, it's great to help other people find their inner strength and their purpose and their meaning to move forward. And I also experienced it in ways that were really detrimental. As a teenager who couldn't go back home, there were certain things in my life that I couldn't control. And I was smart enough and old enough to know that. And so that led to a kind of distrust with adults who I felt were not being completely honest with me. And I think that is, as an educator, um, that is one of the most important things that you can be, especially with teenagers who care so much about authenticity and truth. And it honestly took me years to kind of unlearn this idea that no matter what we go through, we can be stronger for it and that we, we need to be. Because the truth is that stuff happens in everybody's life that affects them and that has lasting consequences. And so for me, getting to a place of acceptance was really about recognizing, okay, here are the things that happened to me. Here are why they happened and kind of the bigger forces in society that shaped my adolescence and recognizing what that impact was so that I could move forward with it instead of pretending that it didn't happen or this wishy-washy thinking that I could just imagine it all away. Yeah. So this idea of acceptance or self-acceptance, can you tell us maybe more specifically how this is a tool for personal development, especially among students at a university? Yeah. I think as slightly older people, right, I'm a millennial, and I grew up in a different context. One where there was a lot more optimism when I was a child, where we could kind of believe that things were still like, that everything could be made for the better. And I think the kids today, you know, Gen Z and 
like the polar generation below them, they don't live in that world. And, you know, we're all aware of the impact of COVID and the pandemic and social media on young people's mental health. And part of that is recognizing that like college students today, they really can't believe that everything that's happened might be for the better because they've been witnessing senseless shootings, global warming. And so I think it takes a radically different approach than falling back on those ideas of grit. And so I think it's just really important to, to recognize, okay, what, what impact has the past three years had on young people? And even going back before that, right, looking at, okay, what systemic forces have shaped your life, whether that is racism or sexism or income inequality, and being upfront and honest about that as a way to, to move forward. Yeah, I think that's really well put. And also, it gave me this perspective or this insight that even from the faculty's point of view, having their own acceptance of the last three years mm. and their own acceptance of some of the challenges and, you know, the, the new obstacles that they're facing day to day, you know, having, again, just drawing from my own experience, having been pushed to take all of my in-course, <laughs> in-person curriculum and then translate that to an online learning experience virtually overnight. And then like a year later saying, okay, now everything's back on campus. So maybe this idea of acceptance or self-acceptance can not only be helpful for the student, but also from the faculty or the administrator side. Absolutely. I feel like there's a lot of powers that be that have told people, we just have to keep going. You know, we have to power through. When really at this point, a lot of people need to take a break. A lot of people need a reset button and a little bit of space to grieve what has been lost and just how absolutely grueling the past three years have been. I mean, for educators, more so than just about anyone. Yeah. So I, I think you, you've you made it clear that this is a refreshing <laughs> sort of uh, contrarian point of view compared to grit, resilience, crunch culture, all of that. But I'm wondering if there's also like a distinction within the the body of work or the the mindset of acceptance. Like, is your kind of flavor of acceptance is it different and in, in, um, in comparison to other strategies when it comes to self acceptance? For me, one of the biggest tenets is really listening to what young people want and desire from their lives, and especially in education. Like, why are young people hoping to go to college? What are they trying to get out of it? And respecting those, those answers, even when they're not exactly what somebody might hope for. So when I was in college, for example, I felt I, I really wanted a job. That was why I was there. I wanted stability. I wanted to have dental insurance. And sometimes I felt really judged by my professors and by administrators, because there was this sense of like, that's not what college is for. Like college is for this like intellectual exploration, even though that didn't take into account that different students are coming from different backgrounds. And a lot of my classmates, they were sending money back home. They were not able to really fully focus on themselves. And how do you think your, 
your personal story because you've been really raw <laughs> with your with yourself and your story and you know putting this book out putting a, a large part of who you are out in print I mean that that in itself is commendable but I, I'm wondering how else your story is kind of breaking down stigmas and, and fostering empathy, which I, I'm kind of hearing you describe acceptance as both listening and, and also empathy. How can your book or, or your personal story break down those stigmas and, you know, really, I guess, foster empathy within a university community? That's a great question. As you mentioned, acceptance is very, very honest. I do not pull any punches. It is the book that I wish I had had as a young person. And for me, the first part of empathy is just understanding that different people come from different places and that we really do not know when we're looking at somebody, what they have been through, what their life is like, and recognizing that we we all hide certain parts of our identities and we all make assumptions about other people. So when I was on campus, people saw me, you know, I'm white, I'm blonde, and it was easy for me to kind of pretend to be somebody who had grown up, you know, upper middle class, like with all those advantages. And I did. And I hope that people read acceptance and recognize the ways that I was pretending to have this kind of picture-perfect life, but there was just all of this stuff behind it, which I think is true for just about anybody who's on a college campus. Right. So so you struck a chord in that answer for me, which is this idea of letting yourself go and overcoming the fear. So it's like, it's one step to have self-acceptance, but then it's another massive step to then be open and honest with other people and overcome that fear, even if you know the benefit that that could provide for others. So any guidance on how a student may overcome that fear of, of really showing their inner self and showing their, the struggles that they're, they're experiencing? That's a really wonderful question. At times, I felt like I was obligated to share my story in order to like educate other people or be like a voice of some kind of diversity. And speaking to more students now, I see how how harmful that that can be to put that expectation, particularly on young people who have been through the most. At the same time, I think back to college and one of the most powerful experiences that I had was in, of all things, an asset pricing class. And every lecture, instead of doing a break where we could, you know, walk around and get coffee or whatever, the teacher would tell us a story. And one day he told us his story about 9-11 and about the friends that he had lost that day. And it was a very personal story. Um, it had good boundaries, but it was, it was deeply emotional. And even though I didn't share anything with him, his vulnerability really helped me feel like that class and honestly, my whole college was a safer space because I was not alone in being the only person who had been through some hard things. So I would really, I would really encourage faculty members and administrators to, 
to think about the ways that they can show up and they can be vulnerable. And even if students don't reciprocate, that does not mean that it's a failure. And now we're going to take a quick break. Want more of the most important higher ed news, insights, and perspectives, but don't have time to look for it? Visit unincorporated.com to subscribe to our higher education news brief, where you'll get the top stories in higher ed delivered straight to your inbox every Monday. And now back to the discussion. So you mentioned boundaries. I guess boundaries are important in that process. And then you also mentioned just the process or the habit of storytelling. And so maybe putting like a protocol around, I'm going to start or open class with a story. And that again, creates kind of that safe space or maybe that rhythm for you to, yeah, to bring your own personal stories and and your own uh, vulnerability. Yeah. I've also heard about some campuses that have, they have structured storytelling programs where each student, you know, at dinner gets three minutes to tell a story and that 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 kind of group vulnerability can lead to a lot of different people, you know, sharing what is important to them without like tokenizing certain people's experiences. Yeah, it's so true. And my experience with storytelling is not only does it create a longer lasting memory in the listener, but it also is a way to kind of vehicle teaching that Mm. doesn't feel like top down or feel like a set of instructions. Like it, it really gives access to learning and teaching in in a much more kind of natural and authentic way. Let's, let's talk about just the writing process in general. Cause I think, you know, to be a successful writer and an author, I mean, that in itself is a feat just by itself. And I'm wondering if you have specific strategies around the writing process and, you know, techniques maybe that you've used that could be helpful for educators and students. So I have taken a lot of, a lot of writing classes and worked with a lot of other people on their personal stories. The most important thing for me and for the people I've worked with is having the opportunity to tell the truth about what happened and to feel accepted as a human being after telling somebody. So even if the writing is bad or it's not a structured story, just being able to get it out there and to really feel like I feel heard, I feel seen. And for me, that's the only place that that I can start from um, in order to, to edit it into something meaningful. And then the second part of my process that was really important was, you know, I went into acceptance and I was writing about my own life in high school and college. And it was just, you know, okay, here's all the things that happened to me. But I didn't have any context about what does this mean in the bigger picture. And and part of it was that my life just literally hadn't given me that context, right? When you are in foster care, most people are not talking to a bunch of like foster care scholars about why is this system the way that it is? Instead, you're just there in that situation. And so it was really important for me, both as a writer and as a human, to go back and to talk to the people who were involved, to research those systems, and to kind of build a framework to understand 
these bigger forces at play. And I think that that can be a really, really powerful tool in the classroom that brings history and economics and current events into like the most personal aspects of a student's life to really see how it's important. That's great. So I'll try to paraphrase here. You mentioned, firstly, just get it out. It doesn't matter if you're a good writer or not. (laughs) And start there. And then also go backward in the history and in the timeline to uncover bits of the story that maybe needed a little more holistic point of view and do research, you know, on the kind of the history and the timeline that helps you advance the story forward. Is that a, is that a fair summary? Yeah. And I think it goes a little bit beyond that too, to understanding not just, okay, here's what happened in my life, but here is why it happened. And here's how the forces that shaped my life shapes the lives of other people too. Nice. All right, here's the soft sell question for you. But how could your memoir acceptance be integrated into a university curriculum? Yeah, so it already is in a few places. And I've seen it happen in a few different ways that I'm just really, really excited about. And one thing that's my dream is to be the fir- like a first year reads or kind of the common reads that universities have. And I think it can be a really fun book for that, in part because it talks about what what do we hide and what do we reveal? And looking at, okay, different students come from different backgrounds, and how do we be kind to each other and interact with each other, knowing that that's the case, without always knowing all the specifics? And I think the other reason that it can be important is that acceptance does talk really frankly about mental health. And often mental health discussions that I'm privy to stay pretty surface level. And it's generally okay to discuss depression and anxiety and stress, but there's a lot of topics that are going on in students' lives but are not really being discussed. So like eating disorders, substance use, self-harm, the impact of sexual assault and abusive relationships. And, you know, those can be really scary topics and they can be hard to talk about. And they're also what so many young people are experiencing. Yeah. So tell us more about that. How does the memoir contribute to conversations around mental health or mental wellness? On the most basic level, it follows one person's story through a bunch of different systems. So you you go to the you know you go to the therapist like what kind of treatment are you receiving, right? And you know medication like the ways it can be really helpful, the ways it could be less helpful. And um while it wasn't great for me to live it, in a way I think it's useful as a as a tool to have a book that does cover you know anorexia, bulimia, self-injury, and that hopefully provides a safe and neutral place to kind of talk about those topics without making it be about like one student's life, right? Or without making it be like, this is a weird thing that's very rare because these, these topics, they're not, they're not rare, right? And so I hope that it provides like a safe 
and neutral ground for educators to kind of open up these topics and for students to think about, you know, how has how have these affected my life? What choices have I made that are helpful for me or maybe not as helpful? And then also kind of looking forward to kind of realistic ideas about if I'm struggling, how can I get help, right? What are the steps that I can take to get myself into a better place? Yeah. And and even if it doesn't, even if that thinking and that reflection doesn't appear in later conversations in the classroom, what I'm sensing is that the book can be a very important first step just to have acceptance for yourself, right? Just reading that, relating to parts of your story, that could help all of us with this discovery and this process of of self-acceptance. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think memoir can be such a powerful genre in part because you don't have to have that much in common with the protagonist in order to identify with it. Because we're all human and we're all having struggles. And just this week I got an email from a Vietnam vet who told me that he was crying like throughout the book. And that it's so amazing to me that there are ways that we can, even in this really fractured world, that we can connect as humans around our joint vulnerabilities and the things that we all have been through and hide. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's counterculture because we always put that fancy facade out, especially on social media, right? So I think... I think you're right. I'm just hearing someone else's and seeing someone else's vulnerability, even if we don't have a direct experience with what they've gone through, it can help us in our own struggles. Do you have upcoming projects that will continue to contribute to this space and contribute to this conversation around personal development and mental wellness? I just published an op-ed in the New York Times about mental health disclosures in college applications um, called I Edited Mental Illness Out of My College Application. I'm not alone. And I'm doing more journalism in the college mental health space. And I'm also really thrilled to be going to universities and doing workshops with students and speaking about these topics. I think it's really it's such a difficult time for young people and it's such an exciting time because they are really on the forefront of raising mental health awareness of destigmatizing mental health. And it's so exciting to be in conversation with them. Wow. So I have two follow-up questions. One is if someone were to kind of solicit you as a speaker and they want to learn more, where do they go? Uh, But before we get to that, I also want to hear more about this recent op-ed piece that you just did. It gave me shivers <laughs> when you oh, described really? the title. <laughs> it's like, whoa, I feel like I did that in my college yeah. application. <laughs> Who's the audience for that? It's really a, a combination. I wrote it hoping that it would help students and parents and college counselors and guidance counselors. That's the audience that's kind of the nearest to my heart because I remember being in that situation and having no idea what to do. And I also think it's really important for college admissions officers and educators, faculty to understand here are the different ways that mental health 
shows up in students' lives. And that for some students, particularly those with less means, it can be really impossible to hide. And there was this, as I was interviewing people, I was so overwhelmed by the empathy that admissions officers and higher ed faculty had for students and also the ways that we don't talk about the fact that if you are a student living in rural Tennessee, the healthcare you're going to receive is totally different than if you're a wealthy student living in a big coastal city. That's true. And and the mental health challenges are going to differ as well, right? Given each of the circumstances. Wow. Well, I know what I'm reading after this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So how would one reach out to you if they wanted to book time and learn more from you? Yeah. um, You can follow me on my website at emmyneatfeld.com. I have a newsletter that I send out once a month with my new articles. And yeah, you can stay in touch on social media as well. I'm Emmy Niedfeld everywhere. Awesome. You're well-branded, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if only you could spell my last name. Yeah, right, right. It's not phonetic uh, directly, but that's N-I-E-T-F-E-L-D, correct? Gold star. (laughs) (laughs) I was always going for the happy face with the gold star, so that's good. So final (laughs) thoughts, final takeaways for, for our audience. Read my book. <laughs> um, and also, you know, we all know young people are going through a tough time. And I really hope that reading about what other young people have been through and their journey to get an education can open up doors for conversation and can invite a frankness and an authenticity to some of these topics that, that isn't necessarily easy to pull off. So that's really my wish with this book. Excellent. Well, I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for not watering down your point of view and really showing up in a genuine way. Um, I encourage all of our listeners to read the book and connect with you further. Thanks, Emmy. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast. For more higher ed specific resources, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please visit unincorporated.com.